Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob and a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. This is the word of the Lord. You guys are getting a lot of me this morning, sorry. Okay. Um, we finished our family trait series, um, and we have four weeks until Advent. Uh, we start that, believe it or not. Um, uh, some of our pastors sat down the other day and kind of talked and planned about what we're going to preach for that, and uh, now I'm excited, and let's get the Christmas tree up and, and all of that. I'm one of those guys. Um, but over the next four weeks, um, we're just going to take a breather, and we're not going to get into, any, into anything too lengthy. Uh, we're still going to kind of go deep into God's Word and, and receive from that, but we're not going to go start a new series or anything, anything like that. Uh, this week and next Sunday, we're just going to be in the Psalms, um, hopefully uh, just a refreshing cold drink of water for you. Um, and then the two weeks after that, um, I'm going to look at deacons for a couple weeks and just try to paint a, a picture of where we're going with that, and then we'll uh, jump into Advent. So um, uh, you'll remember we started that family trait series by taking two weeks to look at what it, what it means to abide with Jesus. What, what does it mean to, to be a people who, who practice the presence of God? Um, a community, individuals who have this awareness of his presence, have an awareness of his nearness and enjoy that nearness. Um, and, and really that, that abiding, it pops up a lot uh, all the time, but it really popped up through, through the rest of that series. Uh, we looked at what does it mean to be a generous people? What does it mean to be a people on, on mission? Um, it kept popping up because abiding, as we said, was, is the starting point for all that we do. Um, uh, all of our doing must flow out of our being with the Lord. Our, our, our doing shouldn't kind of outpace our being with Him. So our being with Him is our starting point. It's, the, it's our first calling, essentially. So um, really, we, we desperately want to be a people who have a lived experience of God. Um, I don't know if you want that. I, like, we don't want to be a people who just have this convictional experience of God or just this like theological conviction of God, just this something that we give this kind of mental assent to. Um, I don't know about you, but if that's all that this is, um, I'm out. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I want more than that. I, I desperately want a lived experience with God, uh, experience His nearness and His actual presence um, and, and to enjoy that. So this morning we're going to take a quick look at Psalm 114, and because this psalm, this old poem, uh, it gives us a picture of a, a group of people who experienced that. They, they experienced transcendence. 
They experience the transcendent uh, experience, this real reality. Um, what's interesting about this story, though, is these people didn't go seeking it out. They, they were slaves, and someone broke in from a transcendent reality into their lives. And God himself uh, broke into their reality, and he not only gave them this transcendent experience, um, but he delivered them, and he glorified them, and he, he dignified them. Um, but more than that, he, he actually identified with them, which is amazing. He, God actually changed his name. He's no longer just God or Lord. He's the God of Jacob. Um, if you don't know, Jacob is just another name for Israel. Um, and God becomes the God of Jacob. He's the God of Israel. And um, he says to Jacob, I'm going to take your last name, and I'm, your name, and I'm going to make it my last name. I'm going to incorporate it into my name. I'm going to identify with you. Um, here's this experience of a transcendent God breaking into these people's reality, and he's identifying with them, and he's becoming personally involved in their reality. And he, he begins using his power on their behalf, and he dwells with them. And, and here's the thing, is our world craves that kind of transcendent experience. Um, absolutely is craving that. Um, the West really for the last couple of hundred years has been um, has identified with this principle called secularism. And secularism, um, before secularism, everyone, it's just kind of, it was common that, that this higher power, God, was the, the one who told us how to live. Um, he's the one that, that shaped all that we do. Um, but secularism says that we're free from that. We're free from God's law. We're free from His rule. Um, it's not that we don't believe in a higher power. Some secularists do. But secularism says that we no longer believe that a higher power has any say in what we believe, in, in how we should live our lives. Um, he's not the main authority in the center of my life. I now I am. Um, but here's the thing is that form of secularism is actually dying. It's actually dying. And there's, it, it's not that secularism is dying and it's just somehow being replaced by Christianity. It's not. But it is being replaced by something. Um, there's a journalist, an author called Tara Isabella Wright, and she wrote this book called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. Um, I haven't read it all. I've it kind of popped on my desk and I've been uh, making my way through it this week. But it's really interesting she essentially in this book is unpacking what's going on, why secularism is dying and people are thirsty, they're craving for a transcendence, a transcendent experience. And she points to a few different things. Two of the things I've looked at is um, she notes that in, in more progressive kind of liberal areas of, of the West, um, there's witchcraft and the occult are exploding. Like, since 2016, witchcraft and the occult are, are, are just exploding in, in, in certain areas, these kind of progressive liberal areas of the West. And for a couple reasons. It's firstly, not only because does that give some kind of foundation for a spiritual experience, which people are after, uh, but also because for a long time, witchcraft has been kind of this picture, this, this, this image for uh, anti-institutional rebellion, um, which is really interesting. Um, another point that she makes um, is she looks at wellness culture, which is really fascinating. Um, I'm not like dogging on wellness culture, but she, she uses this, this as an example where there's this huge like multi-billion pound industry 
um, that has made this big drive to essentially create a new kind of purity culture. Wellness culture tries to think discerningly about what we wear, about what we eat, about what we put on our skins, and, and how are those things good for us. But, but not only that, it's a culture that is trying to make those things sacred. Um, Burton points out that it's really a, it's essentially this whole new Levitical system um, that's marking out what is pure and what is impure, and the things that we touch, the, the things that we consume, the things that we taste. She says, really, this is a whole new desire for holiness and to be holy. It's really interesting, isn't it? We, we, we live in a culture that, that actually is hungry for transcendence. And what Psalm 114 is trying to show us is not only how to experience transcendence, um, but how to experience continual spiritual vitality. And in order to do that, the psalmist gives us a few things. Um, should be on the screen. This is essentially a story about a people who identify primarily with God, who are characterized by His presence, and who experiences power. That's what Psalm 114 is about. It's a story about a people whose identity is primarily with God, who are characterized by his presence, and who experience his power. Um, so firstly, you have a people who are primarily identified with God. It's pretty obvious when you read Psalm 114 that he's telling the Exodus story. Um, so just look at it. It's a people, Israel, who came out of Egypt, this house of Jacob who came out as a, of a people with a strange language, Judah, that's, it became God's sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. Uh, the sea looked and fled. He's talking about the Red Sea there. The Jordan, Jordan River, turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. So this is a poem, it's a psalm about the Exodus story. And the Exodus story was, was central to the people of Israel's identity. Um, if you were in Israel at the time, um, what was fundamental to your identity as you celebrated the Passover year was the Exodus story. It was to remember the Exodus story, to remember the, the deliverance of God's people out of their bondage in Egypt. That was central to your identity. Um, a, a Jew, as they celebrated the Passover, they would remember and they would rehearse that we were once slaves, but that God miraculously delivered us. And he, he brought plagues to Egypt. He brought the Passover lamb. And he, he parted the Red Sea in order to, to save us from our enemies. God's presence then was, was with us in the wilderness. He was bringing us to a new land, a new place, a new home. And, and in between, on, in that, through that wilderness and their new home, there was this border, this river called the Jordan River. And, and crossing over that Jordan River was crossing over into a new reality, a, a new safety, a new rest. That was their identity. So in, in verses three and four, the psalmist is poetically using this imagery to talk about their identity. It says, the sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams. So the sea's the Red Sea. The Red Sea was the final hurdle out of Egypt. Um, these people have been enslaved for over 400 years, um, but the Lord has broken in and miraculously delivered them. And they're being, remember, they're being chased by the army, the, the Egyptian army, and God through Moses parted that sea and his people walked on dry land. Um, the army, hot on their heels, was chasing after them. They entered in, the sea 
came back together, engulfed them, swallowed them up. Um, the Red Sea was the place that encapsulates their final deliverance from Egypt. It, it means freedom. Um, it, it, it's this imagery of deliverance for the Israelite people. Um, the Jordan River, they came through the Red Sea, they, they went through the wilderness, and as they crossed the Jordan River on the other side of the wilderness, they came to a new home. Um, the, the Jordan gives them this sense of belonging. They're not part of something. They're, they're no longer enslaved. They are now invited in. That's what the Jordan symbolized. Um, and the mountains that skip like rams and lambs, that's imagery of Mount Sinai. This is where God was present with them. And um, not only did he give them the law here, but this is where his presence made the place shake. Um, so these things, these things are, are things that shaped their identity. They are a people who were delivered through the Red Sea. They belonged to a new home when they crossed the Jordan River, and they have a God who is present with them and who makes the mountains tremble. Do you see yet, as you, as you make your way through that story, that it's our story. It's, it's the, their story foreshadows our, our story, that this is how Christians ought to think of ourselves. So picture yourself in the wilderness wandering around and you come across an Israelite and you say, who are you? They, they would say, well, I was in a foreign land under a death sentence. I was in bondage, I was in slavery, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And Moses, our savior, led us out and we crossed over into freedom. And now we're on our way to this promised land, this new home. God has given us instructions on how to be a community He's given us the tabernacle because we're now supposed to live by grace and by forgiveness. And his presence is with us and is going to be with us until the end. Like that's nearly word for word what, what, a, what a Christian would say about themselves, about their identity. I was enslaved to death and sin, but I took shelter under the, under the blood of the lamb. And now God is with me until I get home. The Exodus story foreshadows our story. And Paul explicitly tells that tells us that in 1 Corinthians. When you think about the Exodus story, you're meant to think about your story. That story helps you understand what God has done for you. It helps you understand your identity, church. And so yet again, hear this. The, the, the starting point for experiencing this transcendent life, the way to experience continual spiritual vitality, the way to get that, the beginning place, is to find your identity, who you are, primarily with God. It's to, find, it's, it's to find your sense of self as someone who's been delivered, you, that, that you now have a home, you now have a sense of belonging, and he's going to be with me until the end. That's who you are. That's your new identity in Christ. Um, that's your new identity. And everything else, your work, your, your sexuality, your talents, your ambitions, all of those things are, are now secondary. They are actually built upon your primary reality, and it's not vice versa. So followers of Jesus, you desperately need to understand that and remind yourself of that regularly. You, you don't shape your life. What shapes your life isn't what you want to be and, and, and who you desire to be, and then you somehow make sense of God from, those, from that place. No, you, you make sense of your life in light of who you are in God. Your identity is not primarily who you're trying to make yourself to be. 
but who God has made you to be in Him. That's your starting point. So how are you doing with that? What, what, what does that look like in your everyday life? When you, when you wake up in the morning and you get out of bed, start making breakfast, you start your day, what, is your sen- what, what gives you that, that sense of stability, that sense of security, that sense of safety? Is that based on who you are and what you're trying to be and your ambitions? Is it based on how others perceive you? If it is, you won't get what you want out of life. You won't get what you most deeply want out of life. Or are you starting your day and living from your identity of who God has made you to be in Jesus? Is that where you find your sense of self, your sense of security and stability? So we're not only people whose identity is primarily with God, but secondly, we're people who are characterized primarily by His presence. so the psalm, it not only tells us that God now identifies himself with us, um, I'm the God of Jacob. I'm taking your name and incorporating it into mine. Um, but he also gives us his presence. He gives us his presence, and we become his dwelling place. Um, it's incredible, isn't it? It's really important. Um, the, the, the God of the Bible, it's not, he's not a God of a specific region or a place. Like every other ancient Mesopotamian God at the time. Essentially, if you lived in a region, there was a regional God that you had to worship, that you had to appease and and satisfy. And if you went to another region, there'd be another God that you had to satisfy and and relate to. But that's not the way the God of Jacob was. God didn't at first say, make me a temple so that I can make a place beautiful. He said, make me a tent so that I can go where my wandering people go. Isn't that amazing? Make my dwelling place a dusty tent so that I can be with my dusty people. He's a God who identifies himself with us, and he longs, he desires to be near his people. That's the whole point of the book of Exodus, to make it really simple. Exodus is a bit weird at times, complicated sections, Um, but the main point of that book is God saying, I'm going to deliver you so that I can be your God, so that you can be my people, and so that we can dwell together. That's the point of Exodus. It shows us the very character of God, that he is love, and he wants to be near the people that he loves. Um, John Stark, he's a pastor in New York, Uh, he wrote a book called The Possibility of Prayer, Um, you should read it, it's great. Um, he's my teacher on this text, and he, this is the main, he said this, and it's the main thing I kind of want you to take away from the sermon, that the, the presence of God is what characterizes God's people. Not law, not moral codes, not social structures. Let me say that again. The presence of God is what primarily characterizes God's people, not moral codes or laws or social structures. Um, So that's why in Exodus 34, when Moses was up on the mountain and he was, uh, God was giving him the law, and down at the foot of the mountain, what were the people doing? The rebellion, they made a 
golden calf. They were worshiping it. And God said, forget it. You can take my law. You can take what you've gotten out of Egypt. Um, I'm going to give you an angel, and the angel will, will take you to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, then we're not going either. But we don't, we don't want your laws. We don't want your land. We don't want your inheritance if we don't have you. Why did he say that? Because they were a people of God's presence. God's presence is what primarily characterizes God's people. That's what the law was for. The law was to, to make sense of God's presence with them. It wasn't to, to make them kind of morally superior to the rest of the world. It's not what the law was for. The law was to make sense of God's presence with them. The presence of God is what primarily characterizes God's people, not moral codes or laws or anything like that. And you need to know it's the same for Christians today. For you and me, the thing that primarily characterizes us as God's community is not social boundaries or, or, or moral co codes. What defines a Christian community is God's presence. Is that, is that, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of village? When, when, you, when you're talking to a friend or someone who's like, hey, you're part of village, tell me about that place, tell me about that community, what, what defines that community? What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Well, we do this or we, we don't do this. This is what we value. What should be the first thing that comes into your mind is we're a people of God's presence. The, the transcendent God of the universe has chosen to dwell with us. His presence is what primarily characterizes this community. Um, and Stark says, when we, when we lose that priority, and when, when cultural and social definitions and structures or moral codes begin to define us more than presence, then we begin to just look like the world around us. Because, here's why that's true, is because cultural structures, moral codes, social structures, there's nothing supernatural about those things. A Christian community is characterized by something fundamentally transcendent to all of those things, something supernatural. Now that presence does at times make us difference. There, there, there will be social and moral differences, but those things are not what primarily characterize us. God's presence does. And so here's the question we should be asking ourselves. Does how we live give witness to the fact that God is with us? Or does how we live merely resemble what the culture around us values and celebrates? Does how we live actually give witness to the fact that God is with us? Or does how we live merely resemble what the culture around us values and condemns and celebrates? What defines us more? Here's why that's important to contemplate. Um, Depending on who you talk to and depending on kind of where they are in culture, um, people can either view village 
as a little bit more progressive, there's, there's certain people that are like, oh, they're, it's kind of liberal there. But there's also a lot of people who view village as very conservative. Um, we we kind of get both, which, to be honest, I kind of love that about our church. But when you're, when you're thinking about what defines our community, it's actually easier to look at other communities and to judge them, isn't it? Um, because even in Belfast, we have religious communities that are very conservative, but we also have religious communities that are very liberal. And it's easy to kind of pick out certain ones and, and to judge them. Um, let me explain. So maybe you read the Bible and you just love the Jesus who values the poor. You love the Jesus that, that is with the marginalized. He sides with, with the poor and the marginalized. Um, or maybe you love Paul when he calls out Peter for being a bit of a racist. <laughs> or maybe you love the prophets who condemn the wicked rich. Um, it's easy to want that Jesus, to want that Paul, to want those prophets who call out systemic justices in our society, who, who, who value the poor, who give women a place in society, who, who are peacemakers. And it's easy then to get frustrated with certain communities that don't value those things or seem to be silent on those things. You can get angry and get kind of frustrated, and you should. But here's the thing is, if you want that Jesus who calls out those kinds of sins, you also have to have the Jesus that calls out progressive kind of sins. The Jesus who, who, who condemns sexual freedom or, or this idea that self is what identifies you. Do you see that both conservative communities and liberal communities, they both have structures in place. They both have social structures that actually decide who is right and who is wrong, who is to be celebrated. That there's a structure in both cultures that decides who is alienated and who is celebrated. There's a structure that decides who gets cut off, canceled, and who gets to be a hero. So the question I think is, the passage is trying to ask is, are we more defined by his presence or are we more defined by social structures and moral codes? And can we identify the ways that we've just become like the culture around us? Here's the question I want us to ask. Maybe, maybe this morning, maybe through this week, write it down or contemplate this, examine yourself in this, is, is how I live my life, is, is what I practice, is what I celebrate, what I get angry about, is what I feel injustice towards. Are the things that I affirm, are the things that I condemn, are the things that I make space for in my life, do those things come from the presence of God in my life? Or does it come from the cultural context in which I find myself? Is how I live my life, is what I practice, is what I celebrate, what I get angry about, 
what I feel injustice towards? Are the things that I affirm, the things that I condemn, are the things that I make space for, do those things come from the presence of God in my life? Or do they come from the cultural context in which I find myself? And when we really get honest and answer that question, there's probably going to be things that we need to repent from individually as a, or, and as a corporate body. And there's probably going to be some idols that we need to get rid of. But it's so important that Village Church, which includes you as individuals because we're made up of individual members, it's important that we live our lives from our identity as a people who are primarily characterized by God's transcendent supernatural presence. So the people who experience transcendence and experience continual spiritual vitality in their life with God, they're people whose identity is primarily found with God. Um, They are people who are characterized primarily by His presence and not cultural boundary markers. And lastly, it's a people who experience His power. Um, This is really interesting. Look at verse 4 and 5. The psalmist, he turns again and he addresses the, the sea and the Jordan and the mountains. But you notice he's speaking to them in verses 4 and 5 in present terms. Verses 3 and 4, past terms. You fled, you turned back, you skipped. Verses 4 and 5, he shifts to present terms. He says, what ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. So what he seems to be doing is he's, he's remembering back to that Exodus event, which is, would have been several hundred years ago for him. He's remember back when the sea looked and fled, when the Jordan turned back, when the mountains skipped like rams. But now he's asking them in the present, seas, what ails you? Why do you flee? The Jordan, what makes you turn back? Mountains, what makes you skip? He's asking as if the reality of that power that he's remembering about, that power that made the sea flee, that that made the river turn back, that made the mountains tremble, he's asking as if the reality of that power is present now. In other words, the psalmist is trying to get across here that, that for the people of God, the Exodus story, it's not just some past event that they're just, it's kind of drifting away from the memory and they're just trying to remember it. No, it's a story that actually is a framework for them for present and future realities and experiences. It becomes a framework for present realities, for future experiences. It's not just something they're looking back and saying, hey, remember, remember back when God did something amazing? No, they use that as a framework for present experiences, for present realities. Here's why that's true, is because it's the same presence. It's, it's the same God, that, that God who broke into their lives in Egypt and delivered them and powerfully moves. He brought about those plagues and he splits the sea. That's the same God that is with them in their present. It's the same God who was at work in the, the Exodus. His same presence is powerfully at work. And we have to know that it's the same for us. 
Um, Stark makes this really interesting observation. He says, what you see in Psalm 114 is that past realities, like what happened in the Exodus, actually become more intensified in the present. Past realities become more intensified in the present. Um, you see that in verses 5 and 8. There's this intensification of God's power, which you can read as like poetic hyperbole, but I think it's more than that. Because when you read these verses and you think back to what happened in the Exodus, this, the Red Sea didn't actually flee, did it? Like God just parted it. He parted it so that his people could walk through on dry land and then it came back together again. It didn't actually run away. Mount Sinai, it didn't actually skip like rams. No, God's presence just descended on it like a cloud and it scared people. The, the whole mountain didn't actually jump and skip. Or in verses seven and eight, he says, tremble at the presence of God who turns the pool, the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a stream of water. He's obviously referring to they're in the wilderness, that story, they're in the wilderness, their people are thirsty, Moses strikes the rock and water came out. It didn't actually turn into this pool of water, it just, he just hit it and water came out so that they, they could quench their thirst and that, so that they could keep going. Here's what the psalmist seems to be saying is that the reality of the power of the presence of God that provided provisions for them like water from a rock, it's the same power that now provides abundance in the present. I'll say that again. The reality of the power of the presence of God that provided provisions for people in the past is the same power that now provides abundance in the presence. And I desperately want you to see that it's the same for us today. That that same power of the presence of God that was at work in the Exodus, it was the same powerful presence that was at work in Psalm 114. It was the same power that was at work that rose Jesus from the dead. And that same power is at work in us now because of his presence with us. Jesus actually uh, seems to agree with the psalmist as, as well. Remember Jesus did loads of things, loads of miracles, countless signs and wonders. Why did he have that power? Not because he was just because he was morally superior to everyone else, although he was. He was so powerful because Jesus was the living, walking presence of God. But in John 14, he says something mind-boggling that's hard to understand. He says, when I'm gone, you're gonna do greater works than me. Isn't that incredible? Jesus said, when, when I leave, you're going to do greater works than I did. Why? How is that possible? Because when Jesus died and when he rose from the dead and he ascended to the Father in the right hand, he then sent his spirit to indwell his people. And from that moment, when we become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, we actually become visible signs of his presence. We become visible signs of his power. What was true in the life of Christ, that power becomes increasingly intensified because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Why? Because his presence is with us. Because his spirit indwells you and you and you and you. 
Isn't that amazing? Here's an incredible truth that I want you to take away today, is that we don't have some kind of diminished form of the presence and power of God than what Jesus had. We don't have some diminished form of the presence and power of God than what Jesus had. I wonder if you believe that. Jesus said, you're going to do something greater. You're gonna do something more impactful than the signs and wonders that I've been doing. Why? Because my presence is going to be with you. And I want you to see that for the psalmist in Psalm 114, he wasn't just thinking back on the Exodus, trying to remember it. No, it became increasingly intensified, that, that power in their present reality. And it's the same for us. And it's the same for us for our Exodus event in Jesus. We, we don't just remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus when we take the Lord's Supper every, every week. Just trying our best to remember. No, his power and his presence in Christ's life is actually intensified in ours. What he did on the cross becomes our Exodus event, right? You understand that? The, 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 and that moment becomes our identity. It's core to who we are. And that power becomes increasingly intensified in our present lives because of his presence with us. That's the power at work in our lives. His presence, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And I want you to see that when we become defined by cultural codes, when we become defined by social structures that we're surrounded by, instead of his presence, we lose power. We, we lose a grasp of his power. We no longer trust in his power. We no longer experience it in our lives. Let me say that again. When we become more defined by the codes and social structures of our culture, instead of by God's presence, we lose power. We lose a sense of his power. We lose a grasp of that power. We no longer trust in it. We no longer experience it in our lives because we become more concerned with alignment than by transformation. So let me ask you, brother and sister, what's holding you back? What's holding us back as a community which is made up by individuals? What's holding you back? What's holding us back? What's keeping you from giving your attention to his presence? What's getting in the way? What is it in your life that is hindering you, that is distracting you? Is it your job? Is it your ambitions? Is it, is it sin? Is there a secret sin in your life that you need to confess and repent of? Maybe you're just indifferent. Maybe you're just kind of cynical about it all. It's okay. What's keeping you distant? What's keeping you from paying attention to his presence, from experiencing that transcendence 
What's keeping you from experiencing his power? All of those things that I just said, I want you to know they're normal. Those are normal things, but also they're not insurmountable. Those are, those are normal things to wrestle with. They're normal things I wrestle with. They're normal things that, that get in the way of experiencing his presence, but they're not insurmountable because, believe it or not, God heals. God renews. God restores. That's what he does. <laughs> it's what he does best. His presence and his power, they're more powerful than your distractions. His presence and his power are more powerful than your indifference. He's more powerful than your weakness. And so what do we do? What do we need to do? We need to pray. That, that's, that's all. Like we need to pray for this. We need to pray for his help. We need to pray for you. I need you to pray for me. We need to ask him for his help. This isn't something that, that you and I can just like overcome by our own power. It's not something that we can just figure out because of our own strategies. We actually need him to help us. We need to pray. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, ask, it'll, it'll be given to you. Knock, the door's gonna open to you. Seek, you'll find it. You have a good father who wants to give you those things. Come to him for it. Pray. That's what we're going to do this morning. Have you stand with me? I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes. We don't do this too often, but just close your eyes and we're just going to reflect for a moment. Maybe this is completely new to you this morning. Maybe it's so new to you that, that you do have this deep craving for transcendence, for, for something that this world clearly cannot offer. But maybe you've never had that exodus moment. You've never experienced deliverance from your bondage forgiveness for your sins. You never experienced the freedom that only Jesus can offer. Grace. And may today be the day of salvation for you. It's never too late. No matter how long you've been coming along to like church in your life, it's never too late. May today be the day where you stop trying to earn your own way and you you, you actually throw your faith onto Jesus and you, you trust in what he's accomplished on, for you on the cross. That's the only way to experience real and lasting transcendence because when you place all of your trust on him, he's, his Holy Spirit indwells you powerfully. Maybe you claim to be a disciple of Jesus but you've been so distracted by the things of this world. 
that your attention just hasn't been on his presence in a long time. It feels foreign, even. You feel parched. You feel exhausted. You feel scared. You feel weak. Let me pray for you this morning. Um, if, you, if you feel that way, um, just put your, put your hands out just as a um, physical expression of a, of a heart attitude. I'm going to pray. Um, God in heaven, we thank you for what you said in Isaiah 43 to your people whom you made. Um, you said, don't fear. Don't be afraid. You've been redeemed. I've called you by your name, and you are now mine, and I am the Lord. I am your Savior. Remind us of that again this morning, Lord. Remind us of who we are in you. Remind us of your nearness and your, your presence. May we just enjoy that. May we experience the power that comes because of your actual presence in our lives. Pray for those who don't know you. Lord, soften their hearts. Only you can do that. Call them, Lord, this morning. And pray for those who have walked with you for years, but you just seem far away. They're just distracted. They're wandering. Capture their attention again, Lord. Capture their affections. May they know your nearness. May experience that, that power. You are a powerful God who does powerful things, and you abide in us. Um, capture our attention again this morning, Lord. Thank you for your love. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to sing a couple songs.